the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If you were to gauge your life today as a Christian, if you were to look at the situation that the Lord has put you in, what would you need to do today? What would you need to change today about your circumstances, not your heart, but your physical circumstances to make you a better Christian? In other words, what could you change about your circumstances, your job, your finances, In other words, all of those encompass your social standing in order to be able to truly worship and serve your God 100%. Well, this morning, Paul's going to answer that question for us. And I'm going to tell you right now that the answer is nothing. There's nothing that you need to change in order to serve Him better. You see, we tend to blame our social or physical situations for our sin, for lack of service, for our inability to give Him our all. If only I had more influence, if only I had a better job, if only, if only, if only. But what Paul is about to tell us is that if God has saved you while in a particular situation, then surely God wants to use you in that particular situation situation. This morning as we look at our passage, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, we're going to look at five helps to understanding the Christian's social standing. Five helps so that we can have the right perspective of social status and live according to that. Five helps to understanding social standing. Social standing or social status is a very complicated and nuanced thing, especially these days. It involves how we view our marriage or our singleness or even race and social equality. Whatever you want to think from a political or social or cultural standpoint, it must be based on a biblical standpoint. In other words, a Christian worldview. When you flip those two and let the culture or society or whatever it may be dictate how you view the Scriptures, when you flip those upside down, then the world is going to influence what you believe about the Bible, which in turn will make you question and even challenge, not me, not what other Christians are saying, but God. You see, You may think you have a problem with what I'm saying or what another believer is saying, but so long as what they are saying is biblical, the person you have a problem with is your creator. Sure, it's easier to attack this pastor or attack this blog writer or attack that individual in your church because you don't like what they say. But if what they are saying is reiterating Scripture, 
then who you have a problem with is God. So we better get our thinking straight, especially when it comes to social standing. Because what God can, is willing to, and will do to this sinful world is terrifying. It's terrifying. So we cannot let the world dictate how we think. But it is as terrifying as His grace is astounding. Well, five helps to understanding social standing. Let's look at the first help, which is the universal principle. The universal principle. We're looking at a longer passage uh, this morning, and so I'm just going to read, read it to you as we get to each point. The first is the universal principle. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. He's continuing the flow of thought as he has just talked about marriage and specifically being in a mixed marriage or a Christian, being married to a non-Christian. And then he goes on to verse 17 and says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. 1 Corinthians seven seventeen. This universal principle that Paul lays out here undergirds this entire passage. In fact, so much so that Paul's going to repeat this principle again in verses 20 and 24, adding different nuances to it each time. But it's the same principle. What is the principle? It is that in whatever situation you were called, in other words, that you were saved, there is no reason to try to change that situation. Now, again, the immediate context is a reference to being unequally yoked. And this goes back to the idea that being married to a non-Christian does not somehow contaminate you, your marriage, or your family. In fact, we saw last week that the opposite is true. By your existence in that marriage and in that family, because you are saved, you sanctify your husband, you sanctify the home, you sanctify the kids. And you recall from last week that Paul and the Bible assume that a Christian would not marry a non-Christian. So the situation is most commonly that one spouse becomes a Christian while married, whereas his or her partner does not. Since this is the case, if you are married to a non-Christian because you were saved post-wedding or you thought your uh, spouse was a believer, but it turns out they are not, then there is no need to change your marital status. If you were called while married to an unbeliever, then this is the situation in which you should and can honor God. Paul broadens the principle to all social statuses and circumstances. And as we go on, he will specifically speak of circumcision and being a slave in that time period and in that culture, very much having social stigmas. Now, in our verse, verse 17, Paul uses the word assigned, which means to distribute. And it speaks here of the external conditions of life, your circumstances, your social standing. And the point is that God knows what He's doing. 
and that any social standing, any professional occupation, any marital status, any ethnicity, any religious history can be used for the glory of God. So don't think that because you are saved now that you need to change these things in order to serve Him. The one caveat, of course, would be any occupation or habits that are immoral or illegal. This seems obvious to us, but we need to remember that the context for Paul's Corinthian audience shows us that there needs to be a consideration for pagan priestesses who served as prostitutes. If you remember that from a few weeks ago. Now, before we go on, I must clarify that Paul's main concern is not that you have to stay in your present circumstances or that it's even wrong to change them. It's not wrong to get married. It's not wrong to take that raise or get a new job. That's not what he's saying. So listen carefully. His main concern is this, that as believers, we recognize that whatever situation that we are in is within God's sovereignty and thus the proper circumstance for you to live out your Christian calling. So there is a clear connection to God's sovereignty. He does not make mistakes. To put it another way, God was sovereign in your life even before you were saved. So the situation that you were in when saved was and is the social situation that God assigned you to, specifically at the time of salvation. To put it yet another way, social status is irrelevant to God. Which, by the way, makes your desire to change your social status equally irrelevant and in many cases sinful and idolatrous when we idolize becoming richer or having more stuff or changing jobs or idolizing marriage just to name a few. So, on the one hand, don't neglect your spiritual life because you think you could do better for God if you could just get out of your current marriage, your financial situation, your social status, or whatever it may be. But on the other hand, don't disregard God's sovereignty and good pleasure in putting you exactly where you are. Either way, When you spend so much time trying to better yourself socially, you waste time that could have otherwise been used to glorify God and obey Him. And we see how it can be sinful because we put God to the side and our social or personal or financial or marital goals ahead of Him. We need to be careful. He uses this phrase, each one. And in the Greek... It emphasizes, because in the Greek it's what's in called the it, it's in what is called the emphatic position, and it stresses the fact that every single believer is a unique individual. We understand that no two are alike, and that God's call reaches to people of different backgrounds, different niches of society, and different contexts, and with so many different scenarios that we all live in. There is one 
overarching universal principle, God's call is what matters, so live by that. He closes the verse by saying that he directs this to all the churches. The word directs is a military term. That means to command or to give an order. In other words, this is not a teaching specific to the Corinthians because of their obvious sin issues and immaturity. This is for all the churches. And you can see as a Corinthian back then, having this letter read to you that you could think, oh, he's just speaking to us, but he's saying, no, no, no. This is a biblical principle. This is a God-ordained principle for all believers. And so this is yet another reason this principle is universal. It undergirds all things, and it is for all Christians. So important is this principle that, as I mentioned earlier, Paul will keep repeating it in our passage for the morning, adding a different example or a different nuance each time. Now, having seen that first point, the universal principle, and understanding that he's talking about this throughout, that is so important what our priorities are, and even if we have priorities below this universal principle to glorify God in any situation, we must tie it into that first principle. And as we move on, he gives us this example and repeats the principle. Now, this first example that he gives may be a bit lost to us in our cultural context, but was extremely significant in biblical times. Let's, Let's move on to our second help to understanding social standing or status. The ultimate prerogative. The ultimate prerogative. Follow along as I read verses 18 and 19. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Circumcision was a sign that God gave to his people, a physical sign to his people, the Jews, all the way back in Genesis chapter 17 as part of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, before the multitude of laws that would later be given to Moses to set Israel apart from the rest of the world, Circumcision was given as the main sign of God's people. It was a physical sign of his covenant with God's people. It was a physical change done to the human body. Circumcision then became synonymous with being a Jew and synonymous with belonging to God. There really is no other universal symbol today that carries the significance of circumcision. Whether it's the American flag or your ethnicity or even a title, all of it pales in comparison to this God-ordained sign of circumcision for His people, the Jews. So when the new covenant came about, when Jesus Christ came, circumcision was no longer needed as God's people were not physically to be circumcised, but spiritually circumcised in the heart, and we see that in Romans 2.29. And this also includes Gentiles, and so 
whereas physical circumcision was a sign for the Jew, as the gospel and salvation was opened up universally for non-Jews, the Gentiles, we also have this added bit that you no longer need to be physically circumcised to show uh, that you belong to God because circumcision is within the heart. It is of the Spirit. Now back to Corinth. What was happening there was that there were Jews who were trying to hide their identity by reversing their circumcision. Naturally, as Jews, they were circumcised when they were babies. And now as adults, they wanted to reverse the circumcision. Now, this was because circumcision was looked down upon and ridiculed in their world, in the Greco-Roman ancient world. And this was especially important to these people uh, because they couldn't really hide it. Because they would, many of them would go to the Greek gymnasium where, as you know, they would exercise and bathe publicly naked. And so people would see the circumcision and it was a shame and embarrassment to these Jews. All that to say, at that time, to become uncircumcised was both surgically possible and popular. It's also possible that some Jewish Christians wanted this reversal surgery to show their break from Judaism now that they had accepted the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. This was especially pertinent considering that circumcision was the dividing sign between Jews and non-Jews and in many ways Jews and New Covenant believers. And so you can see even well-meaning Christians outside of the social stigma, would want to reverse their circumcision. And so what we have in these two examples are both a social status reason as well as a spiritual reason that a Jew who was circumcised would seek to be uncircumcised. On the flip side, there were those who got saved and were not Jews, had never been circumcised, They were confused by the Old Testament law and sought to get circumcised as a sign of their commitment to God. And we know this was a bigger problem in the Galatian church where the Judaizers had come in and infiltrated the church and had confused the believers in regards to Paul's teachings. And certain Christians were convinced that circumcision was necessary for or at least as part of their salvation. And so we understand why someone who is not a Jew in the church would want to get circumcised. And what Paul is saying is that you don't need to do either because of the universal principle that he gave us in our first point in verse 17. That is, specifically here, whether you are circumcised and want to get rid of this Jewish symbol or want to advance in social status because of its stigma, or... If you think it's a form of spiritual growth to get circumcised, it's not necessary. Because whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised, that is the social, ethnic, and physical state that God called you in. And what matters is that God called you, not what your physical body is like. Again, the gospel eclipses and thus eliminates all social classifications and distinctions. 
There is no need to change. There is, you are not a lesser Christian because you are a Jew ethnically and are circumcised. There is no lesser blood spilt for you because you are a Gentile believer and are not circumcised. There is nothing in your physical body, in your ethnicity, in your religious background, whatever it may be, that matters to God so long as He has called you. The physical sign of your Jewish ethnicity, don't change and serve Him. Embarrassed because of something society considers a self-imposed mutilation, don't change and serve Him. Never circumcised but desire to physically show the world you belong to God, don't change and serve Him. And we can go on. We can talk about your view of your ethnicity. We can talk about your view of the fact that you are in a blue-collar profession or a white-collar profession. And this is the same thing, right? There are Jews who had this circumcision that wanted to be uncircumcised. They had the sign of God and wanted to be uncircumcised. Maybe you're white-collar and you make a lot of money and you want to downgrade your job because you think it's inappropriate as a Christian. Don't change. Serve God. Well, you, you think that you can't serve God because you're blue-collar. You're making ends meet. You're serving your family. You're providing for them well. But you decide to put aside service, to limit your time from service so that you can go to school and get a degree. And in all that time, you know that you will be sacrificing your worship of God. No, 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 no. You stay blue-collar. Don't change. Serve Him. And you see how this principle applies to everything. But when it comes to circumcision, it's very different because throughout the Old Testament, this was a big deal to the point that there was much confusion for the early church regarding circumcision. So why would he say don't change? Verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. This isn't the only time that Paul declares circumcision inconsequential. Every time because of for the same reason. We see him say this in Galatians 5. He says it in Galatians 6 and in Romans 2 that I referenced earlier. And in that passage he clarifies that now circumcision is of the heart and it is not about a physical procedure. Now keep in mind... Although different today, back then and historically, circumcision is Jewish. Paul is Jewish. So this is a huge statement for someone like Paul to make. But that's kind of the whole point. Spiritual background or any other social marker does not matter. So not just circumcision, but again, also marriage or being unmarried and celibacy are all nothing. They are irrelevant to God. What matters to God, and here we get to the ultimate prerogative at the end of verse 19, 
the keeping of the commandments of God. And as always, I want to point out that if you are obeying externally without the right heart, you are not keeping the commandments of God. It means not just doing what He wants. It means doing what He wants with the right heart, which ultimately is doing what He wants. He says keeping. Keeping of the commandments. This is a great word in the Greek. It means guarding, like a soldier keeping watch at his post so as to protect any sort of violation or removal. We are to be alert. We are to stand guard. We are to obey. And like that watchman on the tower, to make sure in our own hearts no aspect of God's desire and commands for us in our heart, our mind, and our behavior is removed or taken away or violated. We are to protect it in our own hearts for our own worship for our own God. That is the ultimate prerogative, to keep God's commandments. Everything else is irrelevant to God. If those things matter to God, we would be commanded to get married. We would be commanded to stay single. We would be commanded to get circumcised or Jews to reverse their circumcision. Or even if you were circumcised just for whatever reasons as a baby, that you reverse that. We would be commanded to get rid of that tattoo or to get rid of any history on your, uh, your, your, your Facebook page of the, the other religion you used to be a part of or to cut ties with all of your Catholic family members or whatever it is. But we're not. We're not. We're not commanded to change jobs. We are not commanded to make more money. We are not commanded to make less money. The ultimate prerogative is keeping the commandments of God. In other words, going back to the universal principle, don't be confused with what God cares about, obedience and worship, and what society cares about, which often, let's be honest, is an excuse for really what you care about. It doesn't matter to God. So it shouldn't matter to us, even if it is a social stigma as circumcision was for these people in that day. Well, let's go to help number three for Christians to understand social status, the underlying position, the underlying position. We find this in verses 20 through 22. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called a slave or were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. So having addressed marital status and spiritual markings as inconsequential in the bigger scheme of things, he now addresses a very real possibility for the Corinthians, which is slavery. 
Now, as always, I want to remind you that we must remove from our minds the slavery in American history and understand that though there were similarities, there were many, many differences in slavery of the Greco-Roman period. He begins by reiterating the main point in verse 20. And then he adds to it by saying that you are to stay in the condition you were in when you got saved, even if you are a slave. We know from other scriptures, including verse 21, which we'll look at, it, look at in a second, that God has no problem with us changing our marital status or occupation. The point is that you are not to change or seek to change your circumstances out of a felt need that this kind of change would somehow better your relationship with God. And let's be honest, when we try to change our social status, it has nothing to do with our thinking that we can serve God better. We may use that as an excuse. We just selfishly want to better ourselves for our own comfort or for the esteem of man. And here's the thing. God is God, and you are His redeemed. So if God has called you when you are in a specific situation, then again, it is possible to honor Him in that situation. And if you think you can't, then you're missing the whole point. And to help you understand that, He's bringing up slavery. Though it may be socially and physically easier to pursue certain aspects of Christianity in different situations, if you are not even willing to try in your current situation and you put God to the side until you change your situation, then you know what that tells me? That tells me that no matter what situation you find yourself in, you will have challenges to your worship. Because the problem is not your social status or your financial situation or your marital status. The problem is in your heart. You really have convinced yourself that if you have more money or if you have a family or if you have kids that you can worship and serve God better, then there's a problem. Because you don't understand God and you don't understand service. He didn't only serve or he didn't only save, rather, middle-class married, children, married people who have the physical ability to have children. He's called singles of every ethnicity and social status. He has saved married couples who are infertile. He has saved widows, widowers. He has saved all kinds of people all over the world. And they can all worship him. So don't use God. Don't use God as an excuse to pursue your own selfish desires for something else. To drive the point home, he uses the example of the most difficult social situation and occupation you could have in his day. In verse 21, he says that if you, as a Christian slave, have the opportunity to be free, then that's great. Do it. In other words, don't just stay a slave because of what he's written. That's not his point. However, the first half of the verse tells us that if you are called while a slave, then don't worry about it in the sense that 
you are not to allow social pressures embarrass you and stifle your worship. And it doesn't even matter how many people are in your situation or how many people are not in your situation. In Corinth, historians tell us that one-third of the population were slaves and another third were freedmen, which was a technical term for people who were once slaves but were now freed. Understand that slaves were considered property. They had no legal or human rights. Legally, they were not persons. And so you see here not even a social pressure, but a legal reality that they were not considered people. They were farming equipment. They were like the horse or the plow. They were property. But this helps us understand the distinction between what man thinks, even legally, and let's be honest, social pressure is often more powerful than even the law. The distinction between what man says and what God says. You really think that even though some of these slaves were treated and legally considered and socially mocked for and perhaps even themselves did not think they were actual people, they were just property, they were just a thing, that that's how God views them? Oh, yes, yes, God wants to save slaves because he needs equipment and tools. No, no, no. He saw them as people, people worthy of the blood of his son. And as horrible and intolerable As that is, on a social and personal level, it was an opportunity to glorify God on a spiritual level. Your spiritual calling by God rises above the urgency or desire to be freed from slavery. And in the context, this also refers to the desire to get a divorce or get married. Here's the point. That no matter where or what you are, you have the opportunity and ability for Christian faithfulness. Remember, God looks at the heart. A slave clearly was not able to free slaves, for example, to honor God, say, this is my, my act of worship. I'm on the Roman Senate, or I have a lot of pull, or I have a lot of money, and so I'm going to free slaves as an act of worship to God and service to the world. Now, obviously, a slave doesn't have money to do that. Slave couldn't buy a nice home and and host a house church, but that doesn't mean he can't serve. He can serve in his own way. Now, again, there's a very big difference between American slavery and Roman slavery, but isn't it true that some of the deepest, most profound and long-lasting Christian spirituals came from American slaves while in slavery. They understood it. These black men and women, they understood that they could worship and serve God in their horrible state of slavery. How do we not get it just because we only have one car instead of two? Because my best friends all got married and I'm still single. 
they all get to go to church with their husband, but I can't because he's not a believer. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's definitely possible and can be filled with joy. Yes, Paul says it's better to be free for the slave, but this was not an option for many slaves. So if the Lord leaves you there, the Lord leaves you there, again, God's sovereignty, then it is there that you must trust and worship Him. Again, same with your, if you're single or married to an unbeliever or whatever it may be. Now, God may change your situation, but the fact that you are called to Christ means that that change is unnecessary and should not be an obsession or a compulsion, and that's very important. In other words, if you're single, getting married should not be, you should not be obsessed with that idea. You should not be obsessed with more money. You should not be even be obsessed with freedom from slavery. In other words, here's a good gauge, and unfortunately, it's only because hindsight is 2020. If you get married, if you get that job, if you can finally move from a rental to owning property, and you say, well, man, glad that's over with, that dark part of my life. What you're saying is, man, did I waste a lot of time where I could have been honoring God and amassing riches in heaven. We need to be careful that we don't pursue something we want so badly that when we get it, it's a relief rather than time for another opportunity to worship. My favorite word, and you hear this from time to time, especially when uh, on the mission field, when different missionaries or pastors are talking uh, to each other, we say, what's your next adventure? Praise God for that adventure. Now you're embarking on a new adventure because it's all wonderful. It's all exciting if we have the right perspective. Yeah, slavery was hard, but what a wonderful adventure and opportunity to worship the Lord. And now that I'm free, may I not abuse my freedom recklessly, but use that to worship the Lord as well. You need to understand that yes, always, always, it is a 100% true and proven fact that the grass is always greener on the other side in your mind. In your mind. It's only in your head. And no matter how much you may think the grass is greener on the other side, Every present circumstance has its own special opportunities and drawbacks to living out the gospel for God and to others. Because, as he continues in verse 22, he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Though someone may have been a slave at that time, 
If saved as a slave, he or she is now the Lord's freedman. In other words, they have been freed from sin. They have been given a freedom in Christ. And don't think that amounts to nothing. And you could see that, right? Yeah, I'm freed in Christ, but I'm still getting beaten by my master. No, no, no. As difficult as that may be on a physical and social level, the spiritual freedom that you have now that you're no longer enslaved to your sin. Was your beating any different than last week? Why is he smiling? Is that a song that he is humming? You are now free in Christ. On the flip side, in keeping with the analogy, someone who was free when he was saved, whether freedman, meaning a formerly a slave or never a slave, is now Christ's slave. Now, in the Roman culture, the freed slave now belonged to the one who freed him. Now, obviously, some would free him and say, you're, you're free, you don't belong to me. But there's still, obviously, a, a, a respect and allegiance to that individual. For us, that individual is Christ. Now, both of these truths apply to all Christians. We are both freed and enslaved to Christ. Romans 6.22, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Did you catch that? Does that ring a bell? Romans 6.22. How is this true? Romans 6.23. Now that rings a bell. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why there's a beauty in both being free and now enslaved. Because the wages of sin is death, but now you're enslaved to God and worship Him. All of this to say that Paul against again, is minimizing present social status. And understand that slavery is a big one. It was hard. It was demeaning. It it could take your life physically, and that was okay. No one's going to harm you if you break your rake. The cops don't send you to jail. They're property. It was demeaning. It was slavery. But no matter whom you may legally be owned by on earth or bound to through marriage, ultimately it is God to whom you belong. And that's what matters. And we know why. Just like with an actual slave in Roman times, God paid a price. He purchased us. And that leads us to our fourth and very short help to understanding social standing the unparalleled price. The unparalleled price. Look at the first phrase of verse 23. You were bought with a price. This truth really hits home with us as believers, but also reinforces the theological and metaphorical point of verse 22. Uh, This really needs no elaboration. Christ died for your sins. Both slaves and freedmen Married and unmarried, circumcised or uncircumcised, rich or poor, high society or social outcast. As a Christian, you were purchased by the blood of Christ. He died for your sins. He lived the perfect life that God expected, demands that you live. You can't do it. You couldn't do it. You still can't do it. And so he sent the perfect man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to live the life 
we were to live. That's why God created us, Adam and Eve, to fulfill the law of God, to fulfill the law and the prophets, dying as an innocent man for our sins, raised again, proving that He is God, conquering death, proving that He is indeed the Messiah. He died for your sins. Well, let's move on to the fifth help to understanding social standing. We've seen the universal principle, and we've seen it again and again. We've seen the ultimate prerogative, keep His commands. The underlying position, we are freed in Christ. We are uh, His slave, the unparalleled price, the blood of Christ. And fifthly and finally, the unacceptable propensity. The unacceptable propensity. If you like peas, you can say the proclivity or the penchant. They all mean the same thing. And they all refer to a natural, that's important, natural, in other words, even as a Christian, left to our own devices, we would do this, our natural or habitual tendency or inclination. That's what the propensity means. It's that which comes easily for us. We don't need to try. In other words, if we just stop and let go, this is what we're going to do if we don't discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And that's why we have this warning at the end of verse 23. Paul writes, do not become slaves of men. What does it mean to become a slave of men? He is now not talking about physically. He is talking about figuratively and spiritually. To become a slave of men is when the Christian reverts to his previous bondage of worldly thoughts and foolish actions. Foolish actions really meaning the same thing for the Christian as worldly thoughts. Especially, and here's the point, when it comes to social pressures, keeping up with the Joneses, having a level of social acceptance, it is both tempting and easy to slip back into old ways. And this is why it's so dangerous, because when you do that, you are coming under the influence of not God-ordained, but man-made norms and expectations that have nothing to do with Christ. And you then become a slave of men. No, 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 I'm slave to social pressures. Well, what is society? Where did that social pressure come from? From people. It's man-made. You become the slave of men because, again, you submit yourself to expectations and pressures and norms that have nothing to do with Christ, you take that too far and then you will have nothing to do with Christ by your own choice because Christ gets in the way of those types of things. Listen carefully. The only criterion of your worth and how you should live is determined by God's call and not by humans with their faulty judgments and social categorizations. When you live by those rather than in accordance to God's call, then you are voluntarily, willingly enslaving yourself to man, even allowing yourself to be controlled by your circumstances disregards the power and efficacy of God's saving call. And to bring it all home, in verse 24, he repeats our universal principle again, brethren, 
Each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. I've seen this. I've seen this in Christians, good Christians, good men and women, so anxious about what the boss thinks, so racked with fear and sometimes anger and jealousy that he got the promotion, but I didn't. That just in those sins alone, the worship suffers, the family suffers. So what do you do? Work harder. Work longer. Not because this is excellence for God, but because of those things that I just mentioned. So you're not serving your husband or your wife. You're definitely not spending time with your kids or the grandkids or whomever. You're sacrificing church, small group, Bible studies. And even if you're there, you're not all there because you're worried about things. You're just worried about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, having more money. I'm not greedy. I just, I just want to have enough. And then you get there. I just want to have enough. And then you get there. I just want to have enough. And then you get there. It never ends. It never ends. And all the time you're looking the other way when the homeless need money or the missionaries are suffering because their donors don't have money because of losing their jobs or being furloughed. But I'm comfortable. I have the toys. I have the stuff. But where's your worship? And you see why we need this passage. You will never experience slavery like these Corinthians did. And yet we whine and complain like we're getting physically beaten by our bosses and treated like property and have an even less godly attitude than actual beaten, literally spit upon slaves who are worshiping God. And we know we're also even giving away as many possessions as they could, some of them, to help other slaves who had less. We got to be careful, guys. And again, you get that promotion, praise God. You want to get married because you're burning? We just saw it. Then get married. But here's the thing. We can't let these things be an obsession or a compulsion. I've entitled this sermon, The Consummate Calling, because we tend to look at our lives, we try to pick out, and, and you know, we don't even need to try to pick out. You know, we're, our selfishness does that for us. Our selfishness makes mountain out of molehills, and they become glaring issues. They say, I need to deal with that. Then my life will be perfect. Then I can serve. Then I can give. Then I can do whatever. More money, a bigger house, a spouse, kids, whatever. 
Look at our society today. Change your ethnicity. Change your gender. Then I can do it. But your calling in Christ is the consummate calling. In other words, it is the calling that brings you to a state of perfection. In other words, no matter what you may think, no matter what your neighbors may say, no matter what your employers may do to you, the only calling or status that matters, you already have, and that's what makes you perfect. It is the consummate calling. Don't let society's view, or even your own view, of your status or occupation make you think that you are any less in the eyes of God. God is not concerned with the state in which you live. He is concerned with how you live in that state. Serve Him here. Serve Him now. Serve Him wherever He puts you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your sovereignty. And as challenging it may be, as it may be, thank you for your clarity in helping us understand that you know exactly what we're going through. You know exactly where you have put us. You know exactly where you are purposely intending to keep us. Father, may we not be concerned with where we're going with our job, where we're going socially, but may we be overwhelmed with where we're going when we die. Help us to not be overly obsessed and concerned with what our life may bring on a social level, but how we live for our God and our Creator. Use us, Father, for your glory. Help us to be content. Help us to be thankful. Help us to repent if we are making idols of social movement and improvement, financial gain, marriage, kids, freedom from slavery, bothered by our ethnicity, seeking social justice at the expense of honoring you and trusting in your sovereignty. Use us, Lord, to be people who are grateful, not shaking our fists at God, not shaking our fists at your word. Help us to be grateful, thankful, content, and excel still more to serve and worship you and others wherever you may put us. And may we view all of these things, as you do, as irrelevant so that if you choose to change our situation, that we will be ever grateful rather than patting ourselves on the back. Use us in this way, Lord. Help us to see if we are in these areas having the wrong thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together.